Welcome, everyone. We're so glad you're here to chat with us. I'm Lauren, and with me are my amazing teammates, Alex Travis and Pat Frey. She has um, joined us before. She is our Vice President of Home for Good, one of our incredible United Way strategies. Thanks for coming back, Pat. Thank you for having me. And Alex, thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. Super excited to be here with you again today. And today we're honored to welcome our guest, Rabbi Beth Schwartz. Among many things, she is a community leader, an advocate, and has been a very involved volunteer with United Way's Home for Good and an establishing member of the Continuum of Care. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, I'm very happy to be here with you. Well, Rabbi Schwartz, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I have been uh, in Columbus since uh, 2012. Um, I came to serve as Rabbi of Temple Israel. Um, I retired in uh, 2021, so I am now Rabbi Emerita at Temple Israel, um, but I'm still involved with the congregation. They're still my congregation. And um, prior to coming to Columbus, uh, I served in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. And prior to attending seminary, I was a systems analyst for the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, which actually um, is of direct importance to uh, to what I'm doing uh, with Home for Good. Um, and because as a systems analyst, I focused on processes and data and how we understand and use data. And as a congregational rabbi in the community um, and community involvement is very important uh, to the Jewish community here, uh, and particularly Temple Israel. Um, we bring all of our experiences to to our work and to our involvement and to the things that we care about. Uh, so um, that was uh, a bit of experience that has really uh, been significant and paid off all these many, many years later um, with Home for Good. And um, so, yes, I because of that, that's what that's what got me involved is my experience. Um, actually, and forgive me if I'm going on a bit, you can you can edit Not later. at all. Um, because I was involved with uh, in Knoxville with the founding of the Family Justice Center. Um, and served on the clergy task force for family violence. Um, I was asked to join a group of people called by Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, uh, a task force on homelessness. And we had a number of conversations and um, partially this was in response to some new requirements from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, uh, to change the way that our community serves the homeless and to change the focus to, um, to be more of a systems approach. Um, and okay. not, not very many people knew what that meant, but right. as it happened, I did. Okay. Um, and uh, so that was the start. And our conversations quickly uh, moved from what kind of a facility would that be uh, to meet these new challenges from HUD to um, how we actually do the work of uh, moving 
people who are homeless into their own homes. Right. And the processes and the involvement of all of the partner agencies who really honestly did not see themselves as partners at the time. Um, and part right. of that had to do with how HUD collected information. Um, okay. And, and HUD was going to change how they collected that information. And that was a very big deal. Yeah. So that's where it started for me. Okay. Well, we're lucky that you had such an incredible background to support that work. And what a good timing. And I feel like you have a, a big heart for the community to take care of it in a way that is centered on the client as a whole person, I think is really important. Yes. And, and to clarify that focus um, away from the organizations that provide services mm. to the people being served exactly. um, was, was a big, big, big change. And um, I think one of the things that I really have a heart for is, um, is the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. And seeing how the community functions as a whole and how different aspects, different constituents, different organizations work together um, and develop partnerships and relationships. Um, because none of this happens in in isolation. And I guess one of the things that um, motivates me as as a congregational rabbi is that Everything is connected. Everything is part of yes. something bigger. Right. So I recently learned that it was the two of you who established a local continuum of care coalition in our community. Could you explain what continuum of care means and when and how it started? Well, I'll, I'll start, but I'll turn it over to Pat very quickly. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, uh, it started with um, HUD's new mandate that the community act as a single system. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know who in the federal government had this brilliant idea that, hmm, communities are like big systems right. and, uh, and everything is connected. And we could um, not only provide better service to the people who were t- tasked and legislated to serve, but we could actually do it more efficiently and more cost-effectively. Right. And, um, and that co- also coincided with a renewed federal interest in um, using data um, and oh. backing up decisions with data. Right. And so um, I'll, I'll hand it over to Pat to talk about the, um, the sort of birth of the 10-year plan to end homelessness, which is sort of the kickoff to what became the continuum of care. Okay. Thank you for that. And absolutely, and and the uh, 10-year plan to end homelessness was the was Columbus's uh, response to uh, the, the mayor's challenge that took place, started back in 2009, where uh, cities were asked by uh, the federal government from Department of Housing and Urban Development and some of some of the other partners in the federal government to come up with a plan to, in their words, it was to manage the homeless manage, homeless system. Sure. We, as communities, said we don't want to manage homelessness. We want to end homelessness. Oh. The, the the group um, that uh, 
that come together uh, in Columbus. The mayor's task force is what they called it at the beginning. Uh, started meeting over at the Cunningham Center at CSU um, and talking about what that might look like. Well, like any other process or program where you're trying to look at solutions in a way that's different um, and in a way that um, encompasses everybody in the community. It takes a, a long time to get there, right. lots of hurdles to jump through. And of course, by the time, like every other publication, by the time you've you've put it together and it's bound, then you figure out, oh, we left this out or we don't need this anymore. Right. Limit this change or whatever. Um, but the 10-year plan was was published. And at the same time the 10-year plan was coming out, the Department of Housing and Urban Development was saying each of your communities who receive federal funding need to form what you call a continuum of care. The central agency, the central point for oversight for governance, for uh, standards, for protocol, for compliance, not to mention the whole federal funding application. That all needs to be established. Who that's going to be, who's going to be the point of contact for your community for all things from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Okay. Um, So the continuum of care was born out of that and was actually, um, I I had to cheat and look up the the dates, was actually formed in September of 2013. We had our first continuum of care meeting um, and we, Rabbi Beth and myself were uh, chair, Rabbi Beth was the the chair, I was the co-chair of the continuum of care board, Um, our community providers and all of those who worked on the 10-year plan um, and many other organizations, our city governments on both sides of the river, because we do cover Muskogean County in Georgia and Russell County in Alabama. Okay. So our city governments on both sides of the river, our county government over in uh, Russell County, the county commission, um, and countless others came together that September to uh review and look at our governance charter that was under development and it was in January of 2013 I'm sorry 2014 that our first governance charter was was adopted by our continuum of care board and we have gone um through many iterations since then of perfecting <laughs> that process and I always say it's not we don't have it's not like our second of encyclopedias that sits on the desk or on the shelf sure. and it collects dust ours is tattered and bent and, <laughs> and has stains on it because we're it's going used. through it it's it's used it's it's yeah. like the bible it's supposed it's not supposed to be pristine if you're using mm-hmm. it it's supposed to be a little tattered um, okay so we were, we've been, uh, we we were, we were there at the beginning and it was, wasn't until I was talking with Lauren a little bit ago that thought in September, we've been doing this for 10 years together. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 What did those initial meetings look like? How did it start? What was the energy in the room? What was the direction and how has that changed over time? How does the coalition look today? I, I see Pat and I'm <laughs> yeah. laughing. It, it, it looks very, very different. Um, and initially, um, I think it's important to understand that um, since federal money was involved and federal system of reporting um, reporting activities in order to justify and apply for federal funds was very different 
at that time. And agencies worked on their own um, and uh, they had to report things like um, how many beds were occupied in a given time period. What was the average Mm. uh, number of beds occupied in a shelter? Um, And um, and they really worked without they they really worked independently. Okay, and, and so um, and that was very entrenched among federal grant recipients across across all kinds of uh, agencies. And sure. um, so the continuum of care um, was asking people to be less focused on their own particular agency and more focused on the client, the homeless person who was in need of care, and right. to recognize um, how this non-system worked from, from that perspective. Um, and it turned out that um, that's a big cultural shift. And so there was some real anxiety in the room to begin with. How do we do this? Um, ultimately, um, the bottom line was going to be um, that HUD controlled the purse strings, and if you didn't get on board, um, you were your funding was at risk. Okay. So yeah. people had to learn um, had to learn how to communicate, and one of the biggest challenges was that communication because all of these independent agencies had their own databases. And homeless people had to had to schlep from one agency to another and carry all of their documentation. Right. Um, and so there was there were many gaps in information and many duplications and a lot of bureaucratic hurdles for people who were homeless who are among the least able to navigate these kinds of systems. Right. And it began to look like the reality was that um, in providing services to homeless people to prepare them to live in in permanent housing, um, that in reality meant that um, people were being served in a way that helped them to cope with being homeless rather than to actually get them housed. And all of this yeah and and so all of this information that floated around in different formats yeah and and depended on the homeless person carrying his or her paper sure everywhere and it also resulted in a lot of wasted time mhm you can imagine and and a lot of aggravation and anxiety for those people who were seeking help. Yeah. Um, so all of these different agencies had to make a commitment to share data. Ooh. That was a big ask in, yeah. in the beginning. That was a really big ask. And to see themselves as part of something larger and cooperating mm-hmm. uh, rather than sort of f- being focused on their own piece. Um, yeah. That was that was the culture shift, and that was the big, big ask. So at the beginning, there was there was a lot of anxiety. How do we do this? 
um, what happens to our information and um, how do we sort of maintain control of our own processes. And so, so we started from a, a place of being very challenged. And so a lot of, so the, there was an, a lot of initial effort into creating what we call a process model to document, but also to explain how all these pieces currently fit together at the yeah. time, and how they could fit together better. Um, and it, it took a while. Um, Pat, would you like to add anything yeah, to that? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, I was giggling because I was remembering a meeting and it was at, uh, it was then Columbus regional, uh, before it became Piedmont Columbus regional and was in the conference center. And we were talking about community needs and how the, hospitals community needs assessment overlapped the needs of the continuum of care clients and providers and just seeing people to say they're a hospital what do they know about homeless oh. and the providers and and getting and as we're talking and and we're talking as we're talking for six months to a year mm -hmm. and for the light bulbs to come on when it's like if I can take care of housing and I can hand off that portion of my client to the healthcare system that requires healthcare, then I can focus on what I'm good at. They can focus on what they're good at. And thus the client gets the best service of all. Yeah. And that's where the epiphanies started happening. Okay. And, it, okay. and, and we have to give credit to, to the hospital system also because struggling with how to how to manage data more efficiently mm -hmm. uh, and how to um, ensure that people's needs were taken care of um, it was it was a real epiphany to to many people that the hospital system kept track of people of their patients by name um, oh so they were not counting beds. They yeah. weren't counting length of stay in the hospital. They had that information. Yeah. And the connection was that many people who are homeless lack access to health care. And they wind up in the emergency room. Of course. And they wind up in the emergency room later in their in the journey of their symptoms and illness more and more sick. Mm -hmm. And have to be admitted. And then when they are uh, ready to be discharged, where are they going to go? Yes. So the hospital actually had an information system about their patients that was hardly, hardly step one. They were way ahead. <laughs> um, and, and that was a great epiphany because that showed us, really showed us the way to begin to think about patients and clients rather than beds and dollars. Yeah. And, um, so that was, that was a great epiphany that, um, so the hospital system really, really made a huge contribution. And we also know from other research that people who are living in their own place, um, tend to access healthcare less frequently because being on the street or in a tent yeah. is a threat to, to healthcare 
right to begin with. Yep. So, um, so the hospital was interested in supporting this continuum of care because uh, because it would improve their ability to serve and would improve the lives of their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that, that was a big, big turning point. Pat's absolutely right. And, and I, and I do remember some of those conversations. <laughs> you do, you know who these people are? Yeah. <laughs> you know their names? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. And now we all know their names. We, right. Everyone who, who, works with that person whose whose life is touched everyone who touches that person's life we know who they are they are human and and when you think of them as human beings with names rather right. than an occupied bed um makes a huge difference in attitude and how we how we relate and how we relate to each other in serving them. And that was, so that was a big cultural shift. And I remember very clearly, it was maybe about the third annual meeting of the continuum of care uh, that um, someone, one of the, one of the representing one of the organizations um, just so you know, sort of raised his hand to make a comment, and he used the word "we." Mm. And I almost, I, um, I almost jumped in my seat because that okay. told me that we had overcome that that hurdle. We had made that cur- cultural shift, and that the people who were providers of services saw themselves in relationship with each other as a system. Right. That was a turning point. Huge. So let me get this straight. If I was uh, experiencing homelessness in Columbus prior to the continuum of care, you're saying I would have to go to all the different agencies, myself, carry all those documents, probably restate all of that information that I gave to the first person again and again and again um, without transportation um, so I can uh, imagine the frustration of the person experiencing homelessness and the prevention. It sounds like a barrier to me that I would probably not seek out resources if it meant I had to walk there, I had to retell my story to the next person. And maybe I wouldn't remember everything either or have all those documents. So I can uh, imagine that frustration and that barrier. So you're telling me now that because of the continuum of care, all the agencies work together. You have one database. So me, Lauren, goes to Pat and I say, I'm experiencing homelessness. And Pat can say, what is um, available to me? Is that right? And, right. and, and when Pat opens a, a case file for you, yeah. every, every office, every, every agency, every organization, every Everyone who would need information in order to help you now has access to the same information in real time. Oh. Yeah. And as a homeless person, what would happen if you lost one of your documents? Exactly. Exactly. So now it's in the database. Everybody can access it immediately. Mm -hmm. And I can say, Pat can say to you, "I, I think part of your solution is here. And she uh-huh. can notify that that other group 
in real time and say, I'm sending you information about Lauren who needs who needs some help. And you know, it in minutes. Yeah. They know I, mean, I don't I don't have to carry that information with me. It's already in in the system. So you may have to go there, but when yeah. you get there, they already know who you are and what you need. Okay. And then that identifies so let me just back up that I have a conversation with Pat. And this is really important to me because I feel like we're trying, sometimes we try to put people into a system and make them fit, but my situation might not be the same as Alex's. And so Pat can like interview me maybe and identify the areas that I might need support in. So Lauren, let me, and and yes, the answer to that is absolutely yes. But let me back up a little. You were talking about documents and someone possibly losing their document. Absolutely. If you can imagine if you're sleeping outside in the weather and everything else, you're going to get, it's going to get lost. It's going to get wet. It's going to get torn, whatever. Yeah. And, or you have a situation and this week we had until um, very recently, uh, well, I say a couple years, a, a agency helped you get your birth certificate. So they would take the the birth certificate, give you a copy of it and keep the original in the drawer in their office. So, but they didn't put it in a system. So when this, when Lauren then came to Pat and said, hey, I need to go ahead and and get enrolled in services and this, your birth certificate and all. Well, I I don't have it, but ABC123 agency has, so then the client had to leave our office, go over there, sign a release form at the agency for the agency to send us a copy of it. Oh, my goodness. So now um, what we do is as providers is when I get the document, I upload it to the HIPAA compliant database. Yes. And it's stored in the document check so that at any time that the person needs it, which has happened does mm-hmm. happen when another agency needs it and if someone's trying to apply for a driver's license or a um a state id the D- department of driver services accepts it out of our database as a legitimate certified copy oh wow so the person doesn't have to go through that extra hurdle again i don't i don't think people understand how huge this is that you are just pulling down all these barriers and allowing someone who's experiencing homeless, homelessness to access all these resources so easily. That, that, that makes everyone's job easier, including the person that's, right. that's in but need. If, if, you're, if you're experiencing homelessness, you obviously don't have, in my house, we have a short filing cabinet. You don't have a filing cabinet right. hiding around with you with everybody's original birth certificate, original social security card. There's no way or for that. Right. Our, our, we like to call our, 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 our database, our electronic filing cabinet. Sure. As I said, where, where everybody's information can be securely stored for when they need it, or those who are providing services to them need it to, to shorten the length of time homeless, to make it easier to access services. So we're not waiting again for another certified copy that has to come from another state. And it, so you're, that just makes, it makes it harder to serve. It makes the time, um, length of time homelessness, you know, that, that extends that. And by gosh, it's just frustrating if you're yeah. the person 
who's desperate to move on and 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 have a productive uh enhanced quality of life right because from what i understand it takes it it could take someone experiencing homelessness quite a while to come to terms with asking for help and receiving oh, that help absolutely. absolutely absolutely and then by that time if there are all these barriers in place or obstacles they have to run through would make it even more difficult for that person yeah. to help ask and receive. Right. And because, because we are, are, are institutions or service providers that, that get state or federal funding, local funding, we already have guidelines. We already have things that we have to do that, that sometimes may slow down the process. So having the things like the birth certificates and the IDs and the sharing of information, and you were talking about, well, your situation might be different than Alex's. That's all part of the enrollment process. We're asking you about those specific things in our what kind of a household? Are you an individual? Do you have a family? Is that a family with minor children? Do you have adult children? Is it a spouse or a, mm. another family member? We're talking about uh, any kind of uh, of barriers you might have, whether it be you've you've had a, a just you've been justice involved, maybe you have um, some learning disabilities, you have any other barriers to successfully being able to not only access but to maintain maintain housing. So that's part of those what we call wraparound services. It is our job. It is our job as service providers to give the clients everything they need for the best chance for success. Because as I said, if our clients did it, could do it on their own, they wouldn't be our clients to begin with. And and one of the things that that research has shown, uh, and there's been a lot of research on on homelessness and the cost of providing care. Um, those services that a homeless person needs are actually better received, more welcome, and more effective if the person who has been experiencing homelessness is now in a home. Yes, sure. So, when, so the idea of providing all of these services to prepare someone to be housed and not have to experience homelessness living on the street or in a tent anymore. Um, work so much better if the first thing we do is help them to find a place right. to live. And once they have a place to live and have some sense of security that I, I know where I'm going to sleep tonight yeah. and I have a place for my stuff. Right. Um, now I can listen better. I can um, make better use of all of these tools that you want to give me, um, which I had. Yes, it's hard to ask for help. Right. Um, but the the communal issue and that from the larger picture, which is what I what I see, um, is that those services are more effective, more efficient, more cost efficient. Um, by by huge percentages, um, and that means maybe we can help more people. Oh, maybe I like those, that. maybe the, maybe the dollars that come from the federal government are going to go further. Yes, and actually 
be spent not numerous times on the same kinds of services, but targeted, directed at what does Lauren need? And Lauren, here's now that you are in your own space, how can we help you to stay there? And providing services like healthcare and education and training and all of those kinds of things. Um, when you're in your own space, um, just work better. Yeah. And, and it's a better outcome. Um, now you have the dignity of being in your own place. Exactly. So you're talking about a housing first model, which yes. I think it, I mean, it's a simple uh, thought and, and we're doing it now in the, in the um, Chattahoochee Valley, but I think that was a shift as well with the COC coming in, right? It seems so simple, but it is huge. Like you said, Rabbi Schwartz, that you have the dignity and that stability to then make those other improvements in your life and those find those resources easily. And and as much as people as much as people like to criticize the federal government yeah. um, and bureaucracies, um, in this case. Uh, they they got it right that yeah. this was the right path to take. This was an important important shift for every level of providing help for people who are experiencing homelessness. Pat, absolutely. And and housing first was uh was to say co- controversial to say the least. When uh-huh. <laughs> you want me to do what? <laughs> never done it like that. Well, you know what? What we've been doing obviously isn't making the strides and the differences that we want it to do. So we're going to try something new. Um, yes, but housing first simply means you don't put up a barrier and have me to meet certain guidelines or or milestones, I should say, in my quote unquote readiness for housing to able to get to access to housing, the moment you come in, and again, I, I I come from a healthcare background, and it's no different than when we had patients then come into our, our healthcare facility. The moment the client came in or the patient came in, we were planning for their discharge from our facility. We okay. were making sure we were putting things in place to discharge them because just like the homeless services uh, arena, you're not meant to stay here. This is not a place yeah. to stay. This yeah. is a place to move through on your way to your to 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 permanent housing. Mm-hmm. So looking at it from that perspective, the moment you came in, we start asking what's it going what's it going to take to make you successful long term in your own place. Um but um you know it, it that meant too that we had to make sure that agencies understood you can't say well you're going to have to prove that you've uh had one year of of uh you know you've you've been alcohol free for a year mm-hmm. or you haven't done this or you have done this or you've saved up this much money or you've done this um it's we're going to meet you where you are because that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to be that safety net that says, okay, we're going to do this together and we're going to walk through this and we're going to set goals and milestones along the way and we're going to work towards those together. The first one being obtain housing. 
Yes. And then the rest of it, we're going to bring along with us. I can't imagine if someone's telling me, well, I have to be clean or sober for a year, but I'm living under the bridge during the winter when it's raining, cold and snowy. I don't know that I would, I, I, who would want to stay clean and sober? I mean, Mm. honestly. It's hard to be so, successful. I mean, that, that, that's that's reality. Yeah. So, so what? Why? Why are we making um, making demands that are unrealistic? Let's yeah. let's look at meeting people where they are, um, and and truly being part of them being their own solution, but holding their hand during the way. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to reflect back on how far this has come from 2013 to now. And that cultural shift that you described, I think is key. Um, Partners collaborating and providing a more holistic, um, stress-free, or at least minimizing some stress for for our clients and making sure they're getting the most quality services possible, um, I think is a testament to the work that you two put in 10, 11 years ago. I mean, it's amazing to see how far it's come. Um, And just to shift gears a little bit, because we talked about meeting people where they are. Um, We held our annual point in time count in January. We do that every year, Home for Good, coordinates groups of volunteers, and we are counting our sheltered and unsheltered homeless individuals and families in our community. So what did the numbers look like this year, Pat? Did we see any changes? And then how does the Continuum of Care Coalition look at that data and respond according to the needs of the community. Sure. And um, we we did see an increase in um, the numbers of those experiencing homelessness in our community um, this year versus last year. And in fact, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm pulling up the, the report so I get the numbers right. I think it was like a 14% increase overall in, in homelessness from the 2022 numbers. Yes, um, that's, a, that's actually a total of, 33 people um, that were experiencing, more people that were experiencing homelessness in 2023 versus the 2022 numbers. Um, That's not very, uh, very different than virtually every community across the nation. We were expecting anywhere from a 15 to 20% increase um, Mm -hmm. based on on national data. Um, But that being said, and and I wanted to to say when you were saying well we we, we actually we we count the number of of those experiencing homelessness that's that's yes we do but we 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 enumerate those that are that are experiencing homelessness but we also assess for needs and that's another shift that that has taken place over the past you know decade and that we don't just count again heads or or beds we're talking about who this person is. What are their needs? What's their household makeup? And how do we uh, then target mark target outreach, target access to health ha- access to service providers to meet the needs of those experiencing homelessness? And that's what we're doing now. I mean, we don't just take the count and do our federal report and and then call it a day. Um, right. Then take a look at the numbers and based on the person or the household's needs and the priorities of our community, then um, which is set by our community. Um, that's again another novel thought. Um, that we have uh, a community input, not just service providers, but we had 
business leaders, we have the healthcare system, and 27% of those we had participating in our community forums that set those priorities were those with lived experiencing, meaning they're either currently experiencing homelessness or had experienced homelessness in the past five years. Um, so we set those priorities and the community, when we look at the priorities and look at those experiencing homelessness, then we start connecting those individuals and households with the service providers who can help them to address their immediate and long-term needs. And, and it's very interesting because when we did the community forums um, and the uh, one of the things that that some other providers were saying were, how do we know that that the priorities actually are in line with who is in need? I says <laughs> the priorities are what the community thinks is most important. And we will go through and and if the priority is is, for instance, our number one priority is youth, meaning those between 17 and 24 who are unaccompanied and experiencing homelessness. Well, if that person doesn't meet that, then it goes to the next priority, to the next priority, to the next priority. But interestingly enough, the second priority is those families with minor children. That was the biggest increase we saw this year in our point in time count. Oh, so our, our last meeting of our pro, our projects that are funded by the continuum of care, I said, remember last year we were questioning, where would they come up with this priority? Why would this be a priority? And I said, the people who are in the know are the people who are living it every day. Yeah. And they knew before the rest of us had our statistics to prove it. So um, we actually had a jump start on that because of the community workshops. And I hope that answers your question, Alex. It's it's a it's a gathering of information and then it's a year-long endeavor of going through that information and making making sure that we've touched each one of those households to make sure that um the services and housing opportunities are available to each one of them. Yes, it does. Thank you. And thank you also for clarifying that it's not just counting, counting heads. It is much more qualitative than that. Um, I think that's a very important distinction to make. And then there is a community response as well. Right. Absolutely. And also in that response and in that focus, um, I think we'd, we'd want our listeners to know that um, the school system is involved because of these families with minor children sure. who are experiencing homelessness, um, and as well as a focus on veterans, which we know is a nationwide concern uh, yeah. of veterans who don't have any place to live. And so we work with, we have worked with veterans groups as well. Um, with some with some real success, Pat, maybe you'd like to comment on those. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. We've um, uh, back in 2016, um, actually 2015, we started an initiative called Zero Sixteen, which focused on veterans and the chronically homeless. Um, and we are proud to say that we have a community where there's not a veteran on the street who does not have the ability to access permanent housing right now. Not to say that everyone has chosen to do that yet. So we have um, in single digits um, on any given day, we do have veterans who are experiencing homelessness in our community, but we're what we call functional zero in that we, there are resources should the, the individual or family want it. There are resources to end their homelessness immediately. Sure. 
So Rabbi Schwartz, you're the data person. <laughs> what what yeah. do you what do you think lended this year's increase? Um, not just in the Jaji Valley, but across the nation. Do you think it was pandemic? Do you think it was something else? You know, there there are a lot of factors, and actually, Pat has more information on that data than than I do because she works <laughs> with it day to day, week to week, month to sure. month. Um, the pandemic had had an influence. Um, the funding that was um, provided during the pandemic that has now ended mm. is also a factor, Pat. Okay. Yes, I think there's, I, I, and to, to to piggyback off that, yes, all of those things are a factor, um, but we have, we we do have industries that did not recover um, sure. from, from the, the pandemic. And if we look at Columbus in general, um, the, when we look at our occupational groups that, that are concentrated in this area, um, we had very uh, limited options for some folks who were uh, were displaced because they were in the hospitality or service industry um, during the pandemic, and some of the place, some of the uh, facilities just did not recover afterwards. Um, we also, like every other community, <laughs> have seen a fifty to seventy percent increase in the cost of housing. Oh, I think we could talk all day about. Yes. Rental affordable housing, housing. It's absolutely astronomical, the cost. Yeah. And so people were just literally priced out of the market. Yeah. Um, people who were living paycheck to paycheck and, and on the verge and were already what we call, uh, you know, rental poor, or which means they're paying more than 30% of their income in mm-hmm. for housing. It just became too much. Yeah. Um, not to mention with the economy the way it was and food going up and the cost of electricity and natural gas it was it was it was called the perfect storm yeah and something was going to break um and so it's 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 a multi-layered uh, uh problem and it's one of those things where uh, we're we're having to peel back the onion and start approaching it one thing at a time, because once that happens, when we have someone who gets displaced, who is evicted from a home, most of the time you have, of course, then you have the bad rental history, yes, bad credit history. Now you have ba- uh, past due or d- disconnected utilities, so it becomes one thing after another after right. another after another snowball. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that we're really pushing this with uh, with one of our with all of our funding sources, especially with our federal and state um, funds, is we have got to look at increasing access to prevention. Yes. It's cheaper to prevent homelessness than it is to rehouse someone. Right. Well, and I'm sure as you've seen in the community, um, once you, like you said, Pat, once you get into that situation, yeah, yeah. then they're getting out of it, jumping out of that cycle, jumping out of that situation is so difficult and costly. Absolutely. So you're right. So prevention would be, is your key. And I feel like that's been the, the conversation for, for a while is how to shift to prevention. What are the services you can put in place, those gaps for people and I think two and one can identify some of those for Absolutely. people. It's a good resource Absolutely. for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think 
all of the services or the service providers who are providing services to those um, who are experiencing homelessness to end their homelessness, we all can shift to prevention again, but it is a it is a paradigm shift. Oh yeah. So, I see so, what you're saying. So we're working ourselves out of doing this. Yes. We're working ourselves into doing this. Um, so it's, it's, it's just changing the way we look at it and, and shifting our focus from, um, reaction to being proactive. And, and we really have accomplished the goal of being able to react and respond quickly, especially, mm-hmm. um, when there are emergencies, yes. um, sure. an apartment house has a fire, yeah. um, and because we have the relationships that we have now, right. all of those organizations can come together very quickly. And it almost doesn't matter which one takes the, a lead and, and, and makes the first phone call. Yeah. The, everyone can come together very quickly and, and respond. And that's the foundation for being able to shift again into yes. prevention. Yes. Because... We don't have to do the work of establishing those relationships, whether they are relationships of organizations, individuals, data in a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, we That work has been done and it's been successful and will enable the shift to prevention because we already know each other. We know how to talk about what's important and when when things shift, like the focus from veterans to the focus on families with minor children, we know how to talk about it now. Yeah. We know how to talk about it in a conversation with with each other and um, with the help of advisors from our funding partners. We're all we're all part of this continuum, and that's what a continuum means. So. Um, so the challenges are still real and big, mm-hmm. but um, but we've come a very long way in our ability to to meet those challenges. Yeah, I think that that is a huge point, Rabbi Schwartz. That you've already done, you've already uh, accomplished so much. It's been a success in tackling this issue. So now the switch, the 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 paradigm shift. That's just another another issue you have to tackle. And you've done it before. You could do it again. What an amazing story. And and the icing on that cake, and it's a very big cake. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. One of the um, sweetest pieces is that um, Pat and I have become very good friends. Um, mm. And we come from very different backgrounds, professionally, personally, geographically. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that we are not the only friendship that has resulted from this continuum. So at every level, um, this is, this is good work. And yes, I'm a rabbi. So I would, I, I would have to say, you know, this is holy work. Mm. This is really holy work. And most of the people who, who deal with homelessness, with people who are experiencing homelessness, those folks, folks who are service providers, folks who are city employees, um, you know, we're all people who believe in that, in the value of a community caring for its own. Yes. And 
if we do that and we do it well, um, then that helps the future of Columbus as, as a community. Um, you know, there are many places in the country where we know you can't, you can't walk down any street without seeing someone who is living on that street. Yeah. Uh, major cities in, and not so major cities. And yeah. we have done, we've accomplished a lot. And for some of us, this is just, it makes good business sense. Um, it makes good community sense. And, you know, part of the, the satisfaction that I, that I feel is, um, it is holy work. For my tradition, we have a concept called that is tikkun olam repairing the world. Mm. And that, that's what we're all engaged in, in our community. And our community is a better place for it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, something that uh, we talked about before is the work that you all do is really putting hope and encouragement and humanity back into people that may have lost that. And I don't think that there's a higher calling. So I appreciate you both. Pat and Alex, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, not from my perspective. No, thank you, Lauren. No, just thank you both for your time and the incredible work that you do in our community. We so appreciate you. Um, Is there anything for our listeners who may not currently be involved with United Way or the COC? How can they get involved? Where can they learn more? Absolutely. Um, you can always go to our website, uh, whether it be United Way's website at unitedcv.org That's right. or homeforgoodcv.org, or always you can always call 211 and, and look for opportunities to volunteer and serve our community. Well, Rabbi Schwartz, was there anything you wanted to touch on that we missed? Um, well, there are lots of lots of aspects <laughs> this we could talk about all day, sure. but um, I think it's been a really good hour. Okay. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for taking time to chat with us. Thank you. Bye-bye, ladies. Our pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like more information about United Way, visit unitedcv.org. And thanks again for listening. We're so glad you're here to chat with us.